So I sat down to record this here podcast, and I opened my phone. The way that I do it is I just read this shit on my phone in, like, the iBooks app or whatever it's called. And so it opened up, and the chapter title was Contradictions Among the People. And I was like, whoa, we're about to get into some serious shit. This is amazing. And then I realized that it was a different book. I had a different book pulled up. But, like, for a brief glorious moment i was so excited and then i opened this book and the chapter is called the polyjuice potion so here we are then the polyjuice potion So to catch us up, Harry is in deep shit, because all these frozen-ass kids keep popping up, and so he gets taken to Mumblecore's pad, and so then we get this description of Mumblecore's room, and the narrator is like, if he hadn't been scared, Harry would have really enjoyed looking around at this room. And so the narrator has access, apparently, to this weird alternate reality, like the narrator can enter into the fucking subjunctive mood of Harry Potter all of a sudden. Super weird. Or, in the alternative, it's that, like, Harry is literally thinking, if I weren't so scared right now, I'd really enjoy this. Which is even weirder? I mean, they're both pretty fucking weird. The idea that Harry is just contemplating a version of himself that doesn't have this all-consuming fear, and then is able to, like, access the thoughts of this alternate version of himself, I mean, that is some shit that would make Buddhist monks jealous. That's, the, that's actually the thing about Buddhist monks. They don't really get jealous, except if you can do, like, crazy mind shit better than they can. They're just like, fuck, fuck that guy. I'm frustrated. I'm a frustrated monk. I want to do cool mind shit. That, that's my Buddhist monk impression. And then it describes Mobilecore's room, and in the corner is, the wizard, is a wizard hat, and it's the sorting hat. Remember that fucking thing? And... So I think this means Mumblecore is just straight up wearing that shit around, and the hat is just, like, sorting shit, like, sorting people as he's strutting through town, just like, yeah, fuck that guy, that guy's a evil guy. Uh, he's, you know, he's, he's walking through, I don't know, Di- Diagon Alley? Have we... I don't know if we've talked about this on the podcast, or if I've just complained privately about this to various people in my life, but the name Diagon Alley basically encapsulates everything I think about this book so far. It's like a pun that you can either think is clever or gag-inducing, depending on your perspective. And so then Harry puts on the hat because he's like, I gotta make sure I'm brave and not evil. Bro, no hat can tell you that. You gotta just look into your own heart. And so, but he puts on the hat and the hat's like, oh, you wanna make sure you're brave and not evil, right? And Harry's like, yeah. And the hat's like, okay, fine. I think you could be evil. How does that grab you? And Harry's like, you're a fucking liar piece of shit hat. And then the hat's like, oh, you're a fucking shitty wizard guy, Harry Potter. Fucking shitty wizard Harry Potter. Fuck you, Harry Potter. I'm a hat. And then Harry's like, anyway, there's a dying bird over here. What's that dying bird? And uh, there's a bird, and he's dying. And he's, like, coughing up, and he's all, like, shitty and old. And then Harry's like, oh, shit, a dying bird. And then the bird bursts into flames. And Harry's like, fuck. 
And then Mumblecore comes in and he's like, my bird burst into flames. That's badass. And Harry's all like sad and confused. And Mumblecore is like, your grief is funny to me. I am amused by your combination of despair and ignorance. And then he's like, for this bird is a phoenix and it will regenerate. And then he like sits down and he's like, anyway, you're in some sort of trouble, I take it. And just then Hagrid bursts in and he's like, he didn't do it. Harry's innocent. I was showing him dead animals at the time. That's his alibi. And Mumblecore is like, ah, yes, dead birds is something that Hagrid and I have in common for some reason. And then he's like, okay, I know Harry didn't do shit. I'm a magic wizard who's smarter than everyone else, okay? So, and then he, like, adjusts his beard all, like, cockily, tucks it back into his belt. And then he's like, all right, Harry, is there anything you want to tell me? He does that shit, like, that mom shit, you know? Like, anything happen to the front window that I should know about? Uh, And then Harry, like, goes through his mental Rolodex of all the shit he's trying to keep secret. Like... Making a potion to trick crappy Dracula kid, hearing disembodied voices, speaking, uh, sneaking into the woman's restroom, petrifying all the mudbloods, listening to Fury of Five. Nope, I don't have anything I want to say. And so, and then it just cuts. There isn't like, like, that's the end of the scene. And then we get like this point of view shift. And it goes from that scene to just like an overview of the way that the school reacts to the petrified kids again. Like, we didn't already know. And then there's this weird description of how the kids are all going home over Christmas break because they're all scared. And But of course, crappy Dracula kid and his, uh, his fiendish goons are staying. And so is our gang of three. So we got like a nice symmetry there. And then there's even this sentence where clearly the author is trying to come up with a reason that the goons would be staying there too. And she just writes like, well, they do whatever crappy Dracula kid does. So that's all there is to it. Like, really? Like, they are so fucking sycophantic of crappy Dracula kid that their parents just let them stay with him if they want. That is honestly not a recognizable family dynamic that I've ever heard of. So I'm guessing these two kids are either, like, from broken homes or they're orphans or something. But the author's just like, no, fuck any sort of characterization for these two. They are cartoonish thugs with literally no backstory. They are human flanks. They're just two dudes whose entire existence is to stand brutishly on either side of crappy Dracula kid, even though that kid is such a shit that no one would be friends with him if he weren't rich. So I think that's actually the con that old Pickles and Crabapple are going for. They're definitely running some sort of grift on the Malfoy family's wealth. That is the only plausible explanation. They have, like, a long con going on, a sting operation. It's gonna be great. And then... Speaking of indistinguishable characters, Ron's two older brothers, these guys, they're, these fucking guys, they're like, you know, I'm just going to say it. They are large adult sons. These guys are like Mike Huckabee's kids who killed the dog or whatever. It's, you can look that one up. Fall down that rabbit hole on your own time. We have more important things to talk about, like these fucking Weasel brothers. They think Harry being evil is just like a classic gag. And so they're going around the school being like, Evil wizard coming through, like, you know, behind Harry, like, get out of his way or he'll petrify you. And to Harry's credit, his humor is sophisticated enough to pick up on the fact that these two fucking goofballs, these scamps, they're just joshing around and having a laugh. And he takes this as satire, which then he interprets to mean that they don't actually think that he's evil. So Harry's cool with it. But 
uh, Ginny isn't, because recall, she is in love with Harry Potter. And is also probably too young to understand the distinctions between satire and just outright fear-mongering. So she doesn't know what's going on. She needs to read that that Frederick Jameson essay on satire and pastiche. It'd be cool. It would be cool if there was like a scene where she like reads all this cultural theory and then is like, oh, okay, I get it now. My brothers are assuming an interpretive community in which the foundational truth that Harry isn't evil is taken for granted and thus the satire can be imposed superstructurally onto that foundational base. That's pretty cool. And then she like lights up a joint you know, and she's like, but check out this shit. What if there was a discursive mode that tries to combine two oppositional foundational bases? For example, if there was a text that was both worthy of serious literary analysis and satire and mockery, and your discursive mode had to, like, figure out how to juggle honoring that text and its achievements, you know, within, for instance, uh, the cultural and economic sphere, while simultaneously mocking and satirizing its more destructive or poorly thought out ideological elements. And then, but check it, but check it, what if this was also being done by a person who was hitherto unfamiliar with those foundations? Hear me out. And so those people who are already familiar with the foundations could listen and take sort of a a perverse pleasure in watching the discursive process struggle as it comes to terms with the contours of the foundations. It'd be like that level in The Legend of Zelda where the bridge is being constructed as you're walking on it, but you're also, like, hacking at it with your sword. Or, or really, you're walking on the bridge as it's being constructed, but you're also just making fun of the bridge. You're just like, ah, it's a shitty bridge as you're walking on the bridge. Actually, I think it's Zelda 2. And I also think that I have the metaphor backwards. Because it isn't constructed as you walk on it, it's deconstructed as you walk past it. And so then Christmas arrives, and Bossy Girl got them a finished potion for Christmas. And she's like, let's turn ourselves into those two stupid guys that only stayed here for Christmas because the plot required it. And then Harry's owl comes in, and Harry's owl brings Harry a Christmas present from the Dursleys. Remember those psychopathic fucks? They send him a toothpick, which is a real power move. It's like, you hear about those, those parents who literally give their kids coal for Christmas? It's like that, but if you're like an asshole like that, but with no sense of social conventions. So you're just like, here's a worthless thing that we're going to spend a bunch of money trying to like move through the post or whatever. I don't know how, how it gets to the fucking owl, but whatever. So he gets a toothpick. And also a note that asks whether he can stay at Hogwarts for Christmas, because they're like, fuck you. And remember, these are the people who didn't want him to leave to go to Ron's. They literally kept him caged. And now they're like, eh, don't come back. And then everyone else in his life gave him better shit. And then there's a tedious description of the Hogwarts Christmas dinner. I should, I should note, though, that the only time this chapter, like, where the prose really comes alive is when the narrator is describing Christmas shit. Like, the narrator gets fucking into it. Like, the narrator is one of those people that has all the, like, Mariah Carey Christmas albums and all that. And so then they go, and they have their plan in place. And let me review. Here's their plan. Find pickles and crabapple. Steal some bit of their essence or DNA or whatever. And then make a cake 
that puts you to sleep and make them eat that cake and then become them and then try to get crappy Dracula kid to tell you his secrets. And then Ron is like, wow, this seems like a lot of work. It's like, now you come up with that analysis? You just spent a fucking month making this potion. Like, you had bought some sort of home brewing kit for a month, and then and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, actually, now that I think about it, that whole month worth of work, fuck that. But so they do it, and they go to the bathroom, and they drink the potions, and the potions, the potion is described as tasting like overcooked cabbage, which is a really weird thing for Harry to know what tastes like. And then, so, okay, Ron and Harry have this conversation about they should steal Pickles and Patty Cake's shoes. This is, like, I, I, I'm, like, jumping around, but, like, so I forgot about this. They had this conversation about how they should steal their shoes because their shoes are too small, and so when they become the big guys, they're going to need to wear the big guy's shoes. So they steal their shoes, and then they have this other conversation about they're in the little bathroom stall, and they're like, we should take these potions in separate stalls because we're going to get big and then the three of us might not fit in this one stall so they go into separate stalls but none of them bother to actually take off their shoes even though they talked about needing to do it and then were reminded of the very problem underlying why they needed to do it right before they took the potions and they still didn't do it like the book could have just had them not factor that problem in at all and then they just had to deal with, like, their shoes ripping apart or whatever, and then they had to walk around barefoot. Or they could have not had that problem because they remembered to take their shoes off, but instead we get, like, neither? This is just shitty. Like, why? what is this shit? So, anyway, then the narrator just forgets all about that issue, and we have no idea whether they took their shoes off after they got big or if their shoes ripped off, like, Hulk Hogan style, or if their shoes are still on but just, like, cutting off their circulation. Whatever. We don't know. So then they go out, and Bossy Girl is like, I'm pretty sure something weird happened with my potion because I don't want to leave my stall. And so they go out without her, and they find Crappy Dracula Kid, and he's like, hey, I want to show you some funny shit, and he takes them to the Slytherin house, and the password that he has to say to get through the mirror is like, it's like, um, it's like racism or something. And so then they all go in, and then Crappy Dracula Kid shows Ron and Harry the funny thing, and it's a newspaper article, which is always hilarious, and the article is like, Ron Weasley's dad was fined for putting a magical spell on a muggle car, and then there's a quote from Luscious Dracula Man, and Luscious Dracula Man is like, he has brought our organization into ill repute and should resign immediately. And then it says that Mr. Weasley was unavailable for comment, with it, his wife told reporters to clear off or she'd set the family ghoul on them. Which, I mean, just being honest, seems like an odd thing to include in a piece of serious journalism. Like, this newspaper doesn't seem to have, like, very rigorous journalistic standards if they're just going to have a sort of jokey throwaway line like that. Maybe that's the funny thing that crappy Dracula kid wanted to show them. Like, look at this newspaper. Their tone is all weird on this part of the article and so then um crappy dracula kid is like isn't that hilarious ron weasley's dad is a piece of shit and that's funny to me uh so he's apparently he has like the mumblecore sense of humor it's just like other people's misery is hilarious and then of course crappy dracula kid says that he isn't the heir to the slytherin throne or whatever and he doesn't know who is 
and his shitty dad, luscious Dracula man, won't tell him. But he does know that the last time the Chamber of Secrets was opened, a mudblood died. And then he says he hopes that that happens again this time, and he especially hopes that the person who dies is Bossy Girl. Which is weird. Like, this kid is just, like, he needs to see a therapist. Then they're like, yo, but, but who was it last time? You know? And CDK is like, no idea. They got expelled, and they're probably in Ozkaban. And they're both like, oh, shit. What is Ozkaban? What the fuck is that? And he says it's the wizard prison. But, like, honestly, if you're going to have a wizard prison, I think you should call it Wizpris. But that's just me. Also, kind of strange that wizards have prisons. Like, cool, for all their magic and shit, uh, they can't manage to get around, like, reproducing this horrific retributive system of justice. In fact, it's pretty strange in general that these wizards have just reproduced all these totalizing institutions, schools, bureaucracies, prisons. Is there, like, a wizard military-industrial complex? There probably will be, because actually, shit, like, this was written at the end of the 20th century. Oh god, we're gonna get, like, like, seriously heavy-handed 9-11 shit shoehorned in here at some point, aren't we? That'd be hilarious. Uh, I just hope that there's, like, some leftist academic wizard out there, like, writing extensive treatises about the, like, Hogwarts to Azkaban pipeline. Anyway, so crappy Dracula kid is prattling on about wizard bullshit and the whizpriz and how his family keeps a secret stash of valuables under the house, which, that's funny because if you believe in the Krabby and Goyle grifter theory, this was their opportunity to do some serious, like, reconnaissance, and they blew it by just stuffing their face with the sleep cakes. And so, while Crappy Dracula Kid is droning on, Ron and Harry start to turn back into themselves. And so they have to, like, run out of the room like a bunch of weirdos. And then they get out there, and they... It turns out they have Crabby and, uh, and, and Crabbier's shoes. And so they like, just, like, give them back to them, and that's really weird. But they never explain that until now. And so then they get back to the bathroom, and Bossy Girl is still there, but she has fur all over herself. And that's because, apparently, the hair wasn't that giant woman's hair. It was the hair of a cat, and the potion goes crazy when you use animal fur or something. Also, real good characterization of, of Bossy Girl here, who was supposed to be like the anal retentive meticulous one, and she was the one that was just like, oh, I'll use this random hair that I'm pretty sure is someone's, what's the worst that could happen? Like, what the, f what the fuck, Bossy Girl? Come on, get your fucking shit together. And then Moaning Myrtle is there, and she's like all gleeful. Which is weird, because you'd think if anyone would be sympathetic to aesthetic deficiencies, it'd be the ghost who is constantly bullied by other ghosts calling her spotty. But no. And then they finally convince Bossy Girl to leave the bathroom and go to the hospital, and Moaning Myrtle is like, You got a tail! Look at you, you tail-ass-looking thought, walking around with a dang tail on you. Shameless. Piece of shit. 